Welcome to session 10 of the Bible in a Year commentary. If you started this series on the 1st of January, then today should be the 10th of January. Today we'll be looking at Genesis 32 to 34 and Psalm 10. But so far in Genesis, we've journeyed from the dawn of creation to the complexities of human choice and divine plans. Initially, we witnessed the splendor of heaven and earth's creation only to see it marred by Adam and Eve's disobedience. Humanity's decline continues, leading God to choose a family, Abraham's lineage, as a beacon of hope. We followed Abraham and Sarah's ups and downs, their faith and their failings, and God's unwavering commitment to them. Their son Isaac continued their legacy, fathering Esau and Jacob. Jacob, despite his destiny to lead, took matters into his own hand, deceiving Esau and Isaac and then fleeing for his life. Picking up from there, Jacob finds himself in a foreign land, falling in love with his cousin Rachel. In a twist of fate, he is deceived by his uncle Laban, who tricks him into marrying Leah, Rachel's sister, leading to another seven years of labour for Rachel's hand. Jacob's family grows, setting the stage for the twelve tribes of Israel, with Judah and Joseph emerging as significant figures, defying the traditional importance of the firstborn. Jacob's relationship with Laban turns sour, filled with deceit and conflict, mirroring Jacob's own past actions. After 20 years, Jacob, once the trickster, learns the hard way that it what it feels like to be on the receiving end. Despite the trials, God's blessing remains steadfast, leading Jacob part ways with Laban, a continuous journey, a changed man. So let's jump in with Genesis 32 to 34. As Jacob heads home, he becomes anxious at the thought of meeting his brother Esau. He sends a group ahead to find out what the situation is. They come back merely saying that Esau is coming with 400 men. So Jacob begins to panic thinking he is about to be attacked and divides all his people and livestock into two camps to increase the chance of at least some surviving. He then prepares gifts for Esau to pacify him. Jacob still has his craftiness and intelligence that he grew up with. His hope is that with each wave of gifts, Esau's anger might be appeased. Then we have the interesting mention of Jacob wrestling with a man at night, having his hip put out, demanding a blessing and having his name changed to Israel. It became apparent that this man was in fact God. Jacob is about to step back into the land God had promised him, but just like Abraham with Isaac, Jacob needed to be tested. Was he committed to walking in all that God has for him? Jacob shows off his determination by continuing to wrestle with God all night and into the morning. Before he left, Jacob lied and cheated to get a blessing. Now he's returning, Jacob is willing to wait on God to bless him. It is at this point God gives Jacob a new name, just as he did with Abraham and Sarah before him. Jacob is now to be called Israel, which means to wrestle with God. While Jacob continues to be referred by his birth name going forward, the name Israel is often used for his descendants as they become their own nation. They are to be a people who wrestle with God. Jacob and Esau finally meet, and Esau is just happy to have his brother back. Jacob, Israel, is able to enter the land that his descendants would re-enter many years later. However, Jacob is still unsure of the situation with his brother, and so manages to separate himself off and settle down in the land. We then get a horrific story of rape of one of Jacob's daughters. The story goes to emphasise how morally and sexually corrupt the people of this land are. Remember how the town of Sodom demanded that the men in Lot's house could be given to them so they could rape them? Or how both Isaac and Abraham were terrified that the people would kill them and steal their wives. This land was full of really unsavoury people. We see Simeon and Levi use their cunning, much like their father, but this time with violence, barbarically cutting down the inhabitants of the town. This will get picked up later at the end of Genesis, when Jacob gives blessings to each of his sons, 
that go on to have implications for the tribes that are named after them. I believe the repeated use of sexual violence in Genesis is there to show that humanity is deeply fallen and broken, both those far from God and those he calls to himself. It would seem to me just as true today that both inside and outside the church, we need to wrestle and grapple with how do we handle abuses of power, both sexual and non-sexual. But let's look at Psalm 10. This psalm is attributed to King David and fits into the category of lament psalms. Interestingly, this psalm continues on the acrostic pattern we saw of Psalm 9, where each couple of verses or so start with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Here is a summary of that structure, but I would recommend checking out the written version of this commentary in the description to see the structure properly for yourself. We start with verses 1, the first part of verse 3, beginning with Lamed. Trouble is near, but God seems far. Then from the first part of verse 3 to the first part of verse 5, we get the letter Nun, the nature of the wicked. From the second part of verse 5 to verse 6, we then get Mem, the wicked seem to go unpunished. Verse 7 to halfway through verse 8, we get the letter Pay, the wicked curse, oppress and ambush others. From halfway through verse 8 to verse end of verse 9, we get Ayin, the wicked search for ways to oppress the poor. Verses 10 to 11 begin with Sade, the helpless are crushed, seemingly forgotten, by God. Verses 12 to 13 start with the letter Kof, a cry to God to rise up. Verse 14 starts with the letter Resh, God isn't far, he does see. Verses 15 to 16 start with Sin, bring judgment on the wicked as the kings of the nations. And verses 17 to 18 begin with Tal, God does hear and strengthen the innocent, his just father and a protector. Though clearly linked to Psalm 9, this psalm has a very different tone. Rather than starting on focusing on the goodness of God and then introducing their problems into that, here the psalmist is consumed by their struggles. To them it feels like God is far away, that he's hiding. He is surrounded by suffering and pain and has to deal with the accusations of the wicked who say there is no God and the hurting who say God has forgotten them. There are some times when life feels like this, that there is no justice, that the wicked get away with whatever they want and the poor just suffer. There's a part of each of us that longs for justice and in these moments it can seem like there is none. So the psalmist turns to God and throws these questions at him. They ask God to be active and not forget those in need. They ask God why the wicked seem to get their way with whatever they want and confident that God won't do anything. And the psalmist then grounds themselves in the truth that God does hear and he does care. And then they appeal to God's own nature. He is the king of nations and a just king who accepts no wickedness. He will defeat the wicked and protect those in need. While the psalm started off being very bleak, it ends on a high note. There's a sense of victory and confidence that God is just and faithful to his people. When we take Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 together, we more clearly see the contrast that we noticed yesterday. Some days you might start with God and then move on to address your problems. And on others, all you can do is bring God your problems and work through them before you can even begin to stand in the truth of his faithfulness. What's important is that when we lament, we turn to God. Honestly bring him our complaints, ask him to intervene and trust in his faithfulness. The exact order and structure you do that in doesn't matter 